Chapter 5 of The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Read by Matthias Whitney. The Great Apostasy by James E. Talmage. Chapter 5 Causes of the Apostasy. External Causes Continued. As already pointed out, it is convenient to study the causes leading to the great apostasy as belonging to two classes, external and internal, or, one, causes due to conditions operating against the church from without, and, two, causes arising from dissension and heresy within the church itself. We have summarized external causes under the general term persecution, and we have drawn a distinction between Judaistic and pagan persecution waged against the church. Having dealt with the oppositions suffered by the early Christians at the hands of the Jews, or through Jewish instigation, we have now to consider the persecution brought upon the believers in Christ by pagan nations. Pagan Persecution The term pagan, as used here, may be taken as a synonym of heathen, and is to be understood as referring to persons or peoples who did not believe in the existence of the living God, and whose worship was essentially idolatrous. The motives impelling non-believing Jews to oppose the establishment and spread of Christianity may readily be understood, in view of the fact that the religion taught by Christ appeared as a rival to Judaism, and that the growth and spread of the one meant the decline, if not the extinction, of the other. The immediate motive leading to bitter and widespread persecution of the Christians by heathen peoples is not so easy to perceive, since there was no uniform system of idolatrous worship in any single nation, but a vast diversity of deities and cults of idolatry, to no one of which was Christianity opposed more than to all. Yet we find the worshippers of idols forgetting their own differences and uniting in opposition to the gospel of peace. In persecution waged with incredible ferocity and indescribable cruelty. Unfortunately, historians differ widely in their records of persecution of Christians, according to the point of view from which each writer wrote. Thus, in a general way, Christian authors have given extreme accounts of the sufferings to which the Church and its adherents individually were subjected, while non-Christian historians have sought to lessen and minimize the extent and severity of the cruelties practiced against the Christians. There are facts, however, which neither party denies, and to which both give place in their separate records. To make a fair interpretation of these facts, drawing just and true inferences therefrom, should be our purpose. Among pagan persecutors of the Church, the Roman Empire is the principal aggressor. This may appear strange in view of the general tolerance exercised by Rome toward her tributary peoples. Indeed, the real cause of Roman opposition to Christianity has given rise to many conjectures. It is probable that intolerant zeal on the part of the Christians themselves had much to do with their unpopularity among heathen nations. This subject is conservatively summed up by Moshim as follows. A very natural curiosity calls us to inquire how it happened that the Romans, who were troublesome to no nation on account of their religion, and who suffered even the Jews to live under their own laws and follow their own methods of worship, treated the Christians alone with such severity. This important question seems still more difficult to be solved when we consider that the excellent nature of the Christian religion and its admirable tendency to promote both the public welfare of the state and the private felicity of the individual entitled it, in a singular manner, to the favor and protection of the reigning powers. One of the principal reasons of the severity with which the Romans persecuted the Christians, 
notwithstanding these considerations, seems to have been the abhorrence and contempt with which the latter regarded the religion of the empire, which was so intimately connected with the form and indeed with the very essence of its political constitution. For though the Romans gave an unlimited toleration to all religions which had nothing in their tenets dangerous to the commonwealth, yet they would not permit that of their ancestors, which was established by the laws of the state, to be turned into derision, nor the people to be drawn away from their attachment to it. These, however, were the two things which the Christians were charged with, and that justly, though to their honor. They dared to ridicule the absurdities of the pagan superstition, and they were ardent and assiduous in gaining proselytes to the truth. Nor did they only attack the religion of Rome, but also all the different shapes and forms under which superstition appeared in the various countries where they exercised their ministry. From this the Romans concluded that the Christian sect was not only insupportably daring and arrogant, but moreover an enemy to the public tranquillity, and every way proper to excite civil wars and commotions in the empire. It is probably on this account that Tacitus reproaches them with the odious character of haters of mankind, and styles the religion of Jesus as destructive superstition, and that Suetonius speaks of the Christians and their doctrine in terms of the same kind. Another circumstance that irritated the Romans against the Christians was the simplicity of their worship, which resembled in nothing the sacred rites of any other people. The Christians had neither sacrifices nor temples, nor images nor oracles, nor sacerdotal orders, and this was sufficient to bring upon them the reproaches of an ignorant multitude, who imagined that there could be no religion without these. Persecution of the Church by Roman authority may be said to have begun in the reign of Nero, A.D. 64, and to have continued to the close of Diocletian's reign, A.D. 305. Within this range of time there were many periods of diminished severity, if not of comparative tranquility. Nevertheless, the church was the object of heathen oppression for about two and a half centuries. Attempts have been made by Christian writers to segregate the persecution into ten distinct and separate onslaughts, and some profess to find a mystic relation between the ten persecutions thus classified and the ten plagues of Egypt, as also an analogy with the ten horns mentioned by John the Revelator. As a matter of fact attested by history, the number of persecutions of unusual severity was less than ten, while the total of all, including local and restricted assaults, would be much greater. Persecution under Nero The first extended and notable persecution of Christians under the official edict of a Roman emperor was that instigated by Nero, A.D. 64. As students of history know, this monarch is remembered mostly for his crimes. During the latter part of his infamous reign, a large section of the city of Rome was destroyed by fire. He was suspected by some of being responsible for the disaster, and, fearing the resentment of the infuriated people, he sought to implicate the unpopular and much maligned Christians as the incendiaries, and by torture tried to force a confession from them. As to what followed the foul accusation, let us consider the words of a non-Christian writer, Tacitus, whose integrity as a historian is held in esteem. With this view, he, Nero, inflicted the most exquisite tortures on those men who, under the vulgar appellation of Christians, were already branded with deserved infamy. They derived their name and origin from Christ, who, in the reign of Tiberius, had suffered death by the sentence of the procurator, Pontius Pilate. For a while this dire superstition was checked. 
but it again burst forth, and not only spread itself over Judea, the first seat of this mischievous sect, but was even introduced into Rome, the common asylum which receives and protects whatever is impure, whatever is atrocious. The confessions of those that were seized discovered a great multitude of their accomplices, and they were all convicted, not so much for the crime of setting fire to the city, as for their hatred of humankind. They died in torments, and their torments were embittered by insults and derision. Some were nailed on crosses, others sewn up in the skins of wild beasts and exposed to the fury of dogs. Others, again, smeared over with combustible materials, and were used as torches to illuminate the darkness of the night. The gardens of Nero were destined for the melancholy spectacle, which was accompanied with a horse-race, and honored with the presence of the emperor, who mingled with the populace in the dress and attitude of a charioteer. The guilt of the Christians deserved, indeed, the most exemplary punishments, but the public abhorrence was changed into commiseration, from the opinion that those unhappy wretches were sacrificed not so much to the public welfare as to the cruelty of a jealous tyrant. There is some disagreement among historians as to whether the Neronian persecution is to be regarded as a local infliction, practically confined to the city of Rome, or as general throughout the provinces. The consensus of opinion favors the belief that the provinces followed the example of the metropolis, and that the persecution was common throughout the church. This, the first persecution by Roman edict, practically ended with the death of the tyrant Nero, A.D. 68. According to tradition handed down from the early Christian writers, the Apostle Paul and Peter suffered martyrdom at Rome, the former by beheading, the latter by crucifixion during this persecution, and it is further stated that Peter's wife was put to death shortly before her husband, but the tradition is neither confirmed nor disproved by authentic record. Persecution under Domitian The second officially appointed persecution under Roman authority began 93 or 94 A.D., in the reign of Domitian. Both Christians and Jews came under this prince's displeasure, because they refused to reverence the statues he had erected as objects of adoration. A further cause for his special animosity against the Christians, as affirmed by early writers, is as follows. The emperor was persuaded that he was in danger of losing his throne, in view of a reputed prediction that from the family to which Jesus belonged there would arise one who would weaken if not overthrow the power of Rome. With this as his ostensible excuse, this wicked ruler waged terrible destruction on an innocent people. Happily, the persecution thus started was of but few years' duration. Moshim and others aver that the end of the persecution was caused by the emperor's untimely death, though Eusebius, who wrote in the fourth century, quotes an earlier writer as declaring that Domitian had the living descendants of the Savior's family brought before him, and that after questioning them he became convinced that he was in no danger from them, and thereupon dismissed them with contempt and ordered the persecution to cease. It is believed that while the edict of Domitian was in force, the Apostle John suffered banishment to the Isle of Patmos. Persecution under Trajan What is known in ecclesiastical history as the third persecution of the Christian Church took place in the reign of Trajan, who occupied the imperial throne from 98 to 117 AD. He was and is regarded as one of the best of the Roman emperors, yet he sanctioned violent persecution of the Christians owing to their inflexible obstinacy in refusing to sacrifice to Roman gods. 
history has preserved to us a very important letter asking instructions from the emperor by the younger pliny who was governor of pontus and the emperor's reply thereto this correspondence is instructive as showing the extent to which christianity had spread at that time and the way in which believers were treated by the officers of the state pliny inquired of the emperor as to the policy to be pursued in dealing with the christians within his jurisdiction were young and old tender and robust to be treated alike or should punishment be graded should opportunity be given the accused to recant or was the fact that they had once professed christianity to be considered as an unpardonable offence were those convicted as christians to be punished for their religion alone or only for specific offences resulting from their membership in the christian church after propounding such queries the governor proceeded to report to the emperor what he had done in the absence of definite instructions in reply the emperor directed that the christians were not to be hunted nor sought after vindictively but if accused and brought before the judgment seat and if then they refused to renounce their faith they were to be put to death persecution under marcus aurelius marcus aurelius reigned from one hundred sixty one to one hundred eighty a d he was noted as one who sought the greatest good of his people yet under his government the christians suffered added cruelties persecution was most severe in gaul now france among those who met the martyr's fate at that time were polycarp bishop of smyrna and justin martyr known in history as the philosopher with reference to the seeming anomaly that even the best of rulers permitted and even prosecuted vigorous opposition to christian devotees as exemplified by the acts of this emperor a modern writer has said it should be noted that the persecution of the christians under the pagan emperors sprung from political rather than religious motives and that is why we find the names of the best emperors as well as those of the worst in the list of persecutors it was believed that the welfare of the state was bound up with the careful performance of the rites of the national worship and hence while the roman rulers were usually very tolerant allowing all forms of worship among their subjects still they required that men of every faith should at least recognize the roman gods and burn incense before their statues this the christians steadily refused to do their neglect of the service of the temple it was believed angered the gods and endangered the safety of the state bringing upon it drought pestilence and every disaster this was the main reason of their persecution by pagan emperors later persecutions with occasional periods of partial secession the christian believers continued to suffer at the hands of heathen opponents throughout the second and third centuries a violent persecution marked the reign of severus 193 to 211 a.d in the first decade of the third century another characterized the reign of maximin 235 to 238 a.d a period of unusual severity in persecution and suffering befell the christians during the short reign of decius known also as decius trajan 249 to 251 a.d the persecution under decius is designated in ecclesiastical history as the seventh persecution of the christian church others followed in rapid succession some of these periods of specific oppression we pass over and come to the consideration of the diocletian persecution which is spoken of as the tenth and happily the last diocletian reigned from two hundred eighty four to three hundred five a d at first he was very tolerant toward christian belief and practice indeed it is of record that his wife and daughter were christians 
though in some sense secretly. Later, however, he turned against the church and undertook to bring about a total suppression of the Christian religion. To this end, he ordered a general destruction of Christian books and decreed the penalty of death against all who kept such works in their possession. Fire broke out twice in the royal palace at Nicomedia, and on each occasion the incendiary act was charged against the Christians with terrible results. Four separate edicts, each surpassing in vehemence the earlier decrees, were issued against the believers, and for a period of ten years they were the victims of unrestrained rapine, spoliation, and torture. At the end of the decade of terror, the church was in a scattered and seemingly in a hopeless condition. Sacred records had been burnt, places of worship had been razed to the ground, thousands of Christians had been put to death, and every possible effort had been made to destroy the church and abolish Christianity from the earth. Descriptions of the horrible extremes to which brutality was carried are sickening to the soul. A single example must suffice. Eusebius, referring to the persecutions in Egypt, says, And such, too, was the severity of the struggle, which was endured by the Egyptians, who wrestled gloriously for the faith at Tyre. Thousands, both men and women and children, despising the present life for the sake of our Saviour's doctrine, submitted to death in various shapes. Some, after being tortured with scrappings and the rack, and the most dreadful scourgings, and other innumerable agonies, which one might shudder to hear, were finally committed to the flames, and some plunged and drowned in the sea others voluntarily offering their own heads to their executioners, others dying in the midst of their torments, some wasted away by famine, and others again fixed to the cross. Some indeed were executed as malefactors usually were. Others, more cruelly, were nailed with the head downwards, and kept alive until they were destroyed by starving on the cross itself. A modern writer, whose tendency ever was to minimize the extent of Christian persecution, is Edward Gibbon. His account of the conditions prevailing during this period of Diocletian outrage is as follows. The magistrates were commanded to employ every method of severity which might reclaim them from their odious superstition and oblige them to return to the established worship of the gods. This rigorous order was extended by a subsequent edict to the whole body of Christians who were exposed to a violent and general persecution. Instead of those salutary restraints, which had required the direct and solemn testimony of an accuser, it became the duty as well as the interest of the imperial officer to discover, to pursue, and to torment the most obnoxious among the faithful. Heavy penalties were denounced against all who should presume to save a proscribed sectary from the just indignation of the gods and of the emperors. So general was the Diocletian persecution, and so destructive its effect, that as its cessation the Christian church was thought to be forever extinct. Monuments were raised to commemorate the emperor's zeal as a persecutor, notably two pillars erected in Spain. On one of them is an inscription extolling the mighty Diocletian, for having extinguished the name of Christians who brought the republic to ruin. A second pillar commemorates the reign of Diocletian, and honors the imperator, for having everywhere abolished the superstition of Christ, for having extended the worship of the gods. A medal struck in honor of Diocletian bears the inscription, The name of Christian being extinguished. To the fallacy of these assumptions, subsequent events testify. The Diocletian oppression was the last of the great persecutions brought by pagan Rome against Christianity as a whole. The stupendous change, amounting to a revolution, 
now appears in the affairs of the church. Constantine, known in history as Constantine the Great, became emperor of Rome A.D. 306, and reigned 31 years. Early in his reign he espoused the hitherto unpopular cause of the Christians, and took the church under official protection. A legend gained currency that the emperor's conversion was due to a supernatural manifestation, whereby he saw a luminous cross appear in the heavens with the inscription, By this sign, conquer. The genuineness of this alleged manifestation is doubtful, and the evidence of history is against it. The incident is here mentioned to show the means devised to make Christianity popular at the time. It is held by many judicious historians that Constantine's so-called conversion was rather a matter of policy than a sincere acceptance of the truth of Christianity. The emperor himself remained a catechumen, that is, an unbaptized believer, until shortly before his death, when he became a member by baptism. But whatever his motives may have been, he made Christianity the religion of state, issuing an official decree in this effect in 313. He made the cross the royal standard, and the Roman legions now for the first time marched beneath the emblem of Christianity. Myers. Immediately following the change, there was great competition for church preferment. The office of a bishop came to be more highly esteemed than the rank of a general. The emperor himself was the real head of the church. It became unpopular and decidedly disadvantageous in a material sense to be known as a non-Christian. Pagan temples were transformed into churches, and heathen idols were demolished. We read that twelve thousand men and a proportionate number of women and children were baptized into the church of Rome alone within a single year. Constantine removed the capital of the empire from Rome to Byzantium, which city he renamed after himself Constantinople. This, the present capital of Turkey, became headquarters of the state church. How empty and vain appears the Diocletian boast that Christianity was forever extinguished! Yet how different was the church under the patronage of Constantine from the church as established by Christ and as built up by his apostles! The church had already become apostate, as judged by the standard of its original constitution. End of chapter 5